Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Novum Insightful. I'm here today with Alex Bafflin of Bitpanda Custody. Bitpanda is regulated under the FCA crypto asset regime. So one of one of few companies within the UK that have met the FCA requirement to be a crypto company custodying assets. Um, and and also take quite a novel approach that, that allows people to act on on chain in some interesting ways. So, so without further ado, great to uh, be chatting with you, Alex, on the topic of transparency in crypto and, and um, how are you doing anyway? I'm very well and thank you for your time, Toby, and pleasure to talk to your listeners. A little bit of kind of background, I guess. Uh, Bitpanda Custody, formerly Trustology, was acquired by Bitpanda back in February last year, 2022. Bitpanda itself is an Austrian-originated company. They're a broker. They have about 3 million plus now customers, mostly centered in the kind of uh, Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Ireland area, kind of uh, European-focused they also have other aspects of the business, like recently rebranded technology uh, services, it used to be called White Label, which allows new banks predominantly at this point to effectively offer crypto asset buy, sell, hold uh, functionality uh, within their apps. So a White Label service to kind of provide that to new banks, customers, uh, buy, sell, hold functionality. And of course, now that uh, Bitpanda custody has been folded into the group, uh, we offer custody services, both uh, cold and hot wallets, and uniquely kind of uh, insured hot and cold wallets with DeFi capabilities. So yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's a kind of a growing list of uh, offerings to both institutional and business clients, as well as the you know, the original Bitpanda broker uh, retail offering, uh, which stuff life in Austria. No, fantastic, fantastic, and and just in terms of Bitpanda custody, I understand you've been taking quite a sort of novel approach to transparency in crypto, and and what is it that you feel is the sort of Bitpanda custody edge on that front? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess kind of it comes from a set of principles. Uh, one of the set of principles that certainly very much appealed to me when. I came across crypto and, you know, I, lo- I worked in banking all my life, started JP Morgan, Amira, UBS, where I led the innovation team, then moved on to BNY Mellon to figure out what uh, crypto custody could look like until I finally took the plunge to try and uh, become an entrepreneur and started Trustology. The kind of the transparency aspect of crypto always fascinated me, uh, both in terms of uh, kind of transaction transparency, holding transparency, and also the guarantee that no one is able to inflate the money supply. One of the core critical tenants for me of cryptocurrencies and why they're particularly exciting. The bit that I kind of decided I could help with uh, for the kind of mass adoption of this was around the institutional and business use. Because if you kind of think about blockchain, it was designed with P2P in mind, yeah? What I mean by that, it was always uh, thought of as that individuals would directly transact with other individuals through the medium of blockchain uh, without uh, organizations or other individuals becoming the intermediary. Essentially, the intermediary is the blockchain, 
uh, with no single central point of control. Therefore, a lot of the tooling was created in a way that uh, facilitated that use case, individuals controlling their own money, which is great until you have organizations controlling money uh, or teams of people. There just really wasn't a, a set of adequate tooling for that because as soon as you have groups of people or teams of people managing assets, well, now they need uh, wallets that are effectively multi-user wallets. That means uh, ability for multiple people to send transactions, controls around who can uh, send the transactions, who needs to approve them, how many people need to approve it, compliance checks, and all these other things that you need to do as soon as you're managing other people's money rather than your own money. So we started building custody wallets that effectively target multi-user solutions for businesses. And that's interesting. There's a number of caveats on how to do that. They, a lot of the time, people want to have insurance for assets in custody, quite understandable, because if security fails, at least you have some level of backstop through the insurance. Uh, but insurance in this space, especially in the early days, was extremely hard to get because it was very difficult for underwriters to understand um, the risk levels. Mm. One semi hack, if you will, uh, that did uh, work out was the idea that you can go to what's called the specie underwriter. And a specie underwriter is an insurance underwriter that focuses on underwriting risk of bolted assets. So typically you think of uh, gold or paintings, physical objects that you can put in a vault, lock it up, and then you can insure those. Well, one of the interesting aspects of kind of the way that blockchain security works is that you can create a private public key pair, literally, you make up a private key, it's a random number, Usually you would do this inside some sort of a device, often called hardware wallet. Um, it, that hardware wallet typically uh, has all sorts of security measures and that makes it very hard to extract that key by hackers. And then you can sign the transactions. So with the uh, ultimately the device, the device receives the transaction. Inside the device, it applies the signature using the private key stored in there. Well, if you put that device in a physical vault, you can then actually uh, insure it. So the very first set of solutions, uh, now often referred to as cold storage, relied on typically some form of hardware wallet placed typically in some sort of vault or safety deposit box in a secure location. Uh, and that allowed insurance, which was one of the prerequisites for some of the institutional adoption. Uh, so it made a lot of sense. The problem there was, of course, that it's really hard to, um, first of all, programmatically create loads of addresses with those hardware wallets. They were designed as end user devices uh, with a user interface rather than a programmatic interface to create loads of addresses. And then, of course, just signing transactions across a large number of addresses is very hard, um, again, because it's all manual. So the best way then to do that is to have one single address uh, where client assets are commingled. So now you have what's called an omnibus wallet. And all that means is that uh, the same address is given to multiple customers who then send the, uh, the funds to that address. And therefore, that assets are commingled in that address. The problem with commingling, then, of course, is that it then removes transparency because 
for example, one of the things that you really don't want to do is your, for example, exchange like FTX to uh, lend out your deposits because they're telling you that they don't take a risk for those deposits. Turns out they were. The problem with omnibus accounts, though, is that it's very hard to know uh, whether or not they're doing something with your assets or somebody else's. Let's take an example. Toby sends uh, 10 Bitcoin to an address, ABC, and so does Alex. There is now 20 Bitcoin in mm. that address. Uh, now, five uh, Bitcoin leaves the address. Well, I'm still okay because I'm thinking, well, I've got the 10 uh, Bitcoin in that address. As long as balance is over 10, I'm good to go. Perhaps Toby withdrew his assets, whatever. I don't know. But of course, the only time I will really worry is when the balance drops below 10. And because all of us, uh, and I haven't initiated that transaction, because at that point, I'm like, oh, okay, you just move my funds without me performing a trade or a withdrawal. What's going on here? So, kind of early days of insured custody actually made a lot of sense um, because it was the most pragmatic way to solve the problem. But it did then create the issue around the fact that we now give up um, transparency and the protection against rehypothecation for kind of ease of insurance and ease of custodian operations. So there's like another element to this as well, uh, which is typically if funds are commingled, in case of custodian insolvency, it uh, can be argued that the funds actually are on the balance sheet of the custodian, which means, of course, they're subject to the liquidator's uh, purview. So, for example, mm -hmm. kind of even if the money is there, you might have to wait a long time before the liquidators give you your money back mm -hmm. because they have to identify all the potential creditors, including the depositors, and then you might get your money or some of it sometime later. Yeah. And again, that's inherent to omnibus accounts. Whilst if you move towards uh, what I would call segregated accounts, or basically addresses which are uniquely allocated to each customer, there is no assets that are commingled in the same address. And it's very clear and easy to say, this assets are managed by this address, which is managed by this key, and this are only belonging to one individual, then actually, all of a sudden, you can argue that uh, from a terms and conditions point of view, especially, assets are no longer uh, commingled, therefore, they're segregated, and therefore, they're not part of the custodian's balance sheet, and therefore, in case of insolvency, um, you are able to uh, get as near instant access to those assets as you can. So really important. Mm. And of course, also, if you have your own unique address, then you don't have to trust the custodian to tell you how much money you have. You can uh, use any third-party blockchain explorer, type in your address and see what the balance is. Uh, you can even have automated alerts for, that show you any money movement. So you can absolutely uh, have uh, a lot of instant transparency notification whenever there is any fund movement, which again is a way to protect against uh, custodian rehypothecation uh, and probably would have alerted a lot more people to FTX's transactions 
can infer its transactions much earlier on if that scheme was allowed. The problem is technology and insurance because to scale out to individual addresses is very hard. So for example, I've started talking about uh, Bitpanda Broker it has 3 million plus customers. Well, uh, one of the quirks of blockchain, for example, is that if you want to automatically reconcile uh, transactions, uh, it's really hard to do because there is no memory field that you can include in your transfer transaction to indicate um, kind of the customer who's depositing the funds. So essentially, as a, for example, broker, you might receive, I don't know, 10 Bitcoin from what an address that you have no clue who it belongs to because they're pseudonymous. And therefore, uh, with no other information, um, if it was fiat money, pound transfers, you can ask your customer to include a unique reference ID in the memo field when you receive those funds. You all, you know, first of all, the name of the transferee from your bank because the counterparty is always identified and you have the unique reference, which allows you to automatically reconcile transactions. Not the case here. You don't know who the sender is because there is no one managing KYC for the counterparty of the transaction and there's no memo field. So how do you solve that problem? Well, whilst there's no memo field, it's unlike with fiat, very easy to create a new address. So if you've got 3 million customers and you want to take and reconcile deposits from them on Bitcoin and Ethereum, well, that means creating 6 million addresses. And actually, if you do that, it's relatively simple to reconcile. Any funds that arrive in an address, right? you can just automatically reconcile and update the balance of the customer that is associated with that address. Amazing. The problem is, you now have to have systems that are very secure, but effectively allow you to programmatically create addresses at scale when you need it, one per customer and one per chain. And then you need to be able to manage transactions that potentially can be signed by one of 6 million keys. And that the solution needs to be insured. So uh, the simple message is it's quite hard to do technically. <laughs> it took a while to implement those solutions. But that's what we did. We used a uh, kind of very tried and tested security called uh, solutions called hardware security modules um, and used by banks and military organizations to uh, secure and digitally sign transactions for a long time now. So battle tested. Uh, but we had to kind of enhance them to not only uh, provide security around key creation and uh, kind of uh, you know, transaction signing, but the business logic that allows you to prove and not prove that the transaction has been accepted. So we've done a lot of work to make sure that it's extremely secure, very fast, very scalable, very resilient. And as a result, what we've been able to do is actually create a solution that is insured to cold storage grade uh, cover, meaning that it's an insurance cover that is much more likely to pay out than many others because the exclusion clauses on the insurance policies are a lot more sensible. Uh, so it gives reassurance to our customers that they should be able to kind of uh, have a secure system in the first place. But if somehow it is compromised, they're more likely to receive their funds uh, through the insurance payout if that has to happen. Uh, so that's good news. Uh, but they don't have to then sacrifice transparency for that reassurance of insurance, um, because essentially we've been able to scale it out and you can now programmatically create millions of keys, addresses, 
and then manage transactions across all of those addresses through a uh, server-based uh, infrastructure. And we also do all the compliance bits and bobs. Our customers kind of rely on us to help them uh, detect inbound transactions, perform compliance checks, and then quarantine funds if they need to, and vice versa. Without, again, sacrificing transparency, you can take an address that you've created with us, stick it into Blockchain Explorer, and see what the transactions happen. You can stick it into a, a crypto uh, accounting solution, crypto or some other ones, and uh, kind of run your tax calculations. And so that transparency is really good from a almost like a security point of view, but also it allows you to use this huge array of tools out there that rely on segregated uh, wallet addresses uh, to be able to, you know file your tax accounts, see your portfolio dashboards, um, inspect deep inspect transactions, whatever you want to do. So that's what we're focused and that's what we achieved. Um, and people like that because kind of all of a sudden customers have their assurance of actually having independent real-time audits of their balances, not possible with any other system. And that's of course coupled with the fact that uh, we also support DeFi transactions, which means Straight from the wallet, they can do uh, DeFi transactions to earn yields with Compound or Aave, uh, do DeFi trades on DEXs like um, Uniswap, for example, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole host of really exciting, uh, by insurance, <laughs> uh, for example, yeah, uh, for your smart contract failure. There's a whole host of really exciting DeFi depths there. So the uniqueness really is making a scalable solution that does not sacrifice uh, transparency. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of hopefully gives you a brief overview of what we've yeah. been looking at. No, no, no. And I think I think you you touched on many things that, that, that I guess provide a good framework for a conversation there. So, so clearly, I was actually just intrigued because I've been talking with a number of people uh, for our fund, and some have flagged that the cost of insurance can be quite prohibitive, right? What's it costing under the Bitpanda framework, getting, getting uh, insurance? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, the, the insurance details, I'm afraid, are in the NDA, so... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. One, uh, to, one to discuss outside. Yeah, one to discuss. Uh, but it, it, you're absolutely right. It's very expensive. And the way we've structured it, and it took us a while to get to that position, because of the expense, a lot of people kind of uh, want to know that there's a insurance of sufficient value uh, to almost like act as a staking thing, yeah? Because they're like, okay, you've been checked out by a reputable, you know, we're underwritten by Marsh. You've check, been checked out by a reputable broker, by reputable underwriters. There is enough money on the table at stake that uh, kind of that due diligence would have been done thoroughly. And therefore, then what we offer is like a base layer of insurance, which is very kind of cost effective to our customers. And then if they want more dedicated insurance uh, for themselves to offer a high level of um, uh, protection, then they can actually purchase uh, additional insurance on top. So we've got next mode. One is to kind of provide as cost-effective entry point to our product and the features we offer as we possibly can with a certain minimum level of insurance and a top-up capability um, if that's needed, which has worked quite well. People have the choice to then uh, 
gain cheap entry into this kind of space and then upgrade as they need as their needs evolve. Great. Um, so really, really interesting in many ways, right? Because because obviously uh, you're one of um, probably a handful, if that, of uh, solutions that are providing like an institutional ready segregated account model. So I think that's, that's probably quite attractive. Um, I, th I think there's a number that would claim that they're doing so, but then it becomes less clear if under the hood if, if you're actually segregated should that organization default or whatever, right? So, so um, very interesting uh, times. I guess we, in in conjunction with this podcast, uh, we've been doing some research into the proof of reserves area going through the accounts of Binance or uh, whoever, um, Huobi or all, these, all the different organizations, Kraken and wherever, uh, that are now self-reporting in some ways post-FTX, their assets versus liabilities and, and where they stand. I mean, what do you think of this attempt by the, I guess, the more centralized exchanges to try and give transparency to where they stand? Sort of presumably a good thing, but perhaps lacking as well. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to touch on a point, there's a number of uh, custodians out there it's important when people make a choice whether they consider they're getting a technology provider or a custodian. So, for example, a number of well-known companies, for instance, use MPC technology. It's a great piece of kit, but actually, uh, kind of, it relies on part of the key to be stored by the user themselves. And if they lose those keys, actually, all the assets are gone. And typically, those kind of providers are not regulated. Um, so great technology uh, um, kind of makes a lot of sense for some use cases, uh, but increasingly we're seeing folks who actually want a custodian uh, that uh, has final accountability of the keys, is insured on decent terms rather than very uh, shallow terms, and is also regulated and helps them to stay compliant. So there are many, many nuances there, and you're absolutely right. When you combine the insurance to regulation, DeFi capabilities and everything else we offer have kind of there's very few players in that space. So um so we've been kind of worked really hard to get to that position and it's starting to bear fruit, which is great news. In terms of uh asking uh, answering your very specific question around proof of reserves, look, of course it is a step forward and it's a welcome step forward because it shines the light. The problem, of course, is uh how frequently can you perform proof of reserves? Usually, you know, it's after the effect um, by an auditor. That's I said, better than nothing, but that information is always going to be quite stale. You also don't get the uh, other liabilities. So you might have a proof of reserves, but uh, what other liabilities does the uh, company have that are not on-chain visible? What do I mean by that? For example, let's say... Um, the the kind of the service provider or the VASP, whatever you want to call it, claims that they got one million uh, pounds worth or one million ETH, let's call, of deposits with themselves. Usually, uh, they then need to do proof of a reserves. Uh, in this case, by saying, "Look, here's one or couple of addresses which are omnibus, and we can prove that there is in aggregate a million uh, ETH." across one or two or three, whatever the number of omnibus 
addresses there are. And actually we have a private database that when you look at individual holdings by the depositors, it adds up to the same number as those, the balances on those omnibus accounts. And that's really often the proof of reserves for deposit institutions. There's another proof of reserve where people are issuing, for example, tokens which are asset backed. So for example, some folks will be issuing um, WBTC, wrapped Bitcoin or, on Ethereum. The idea is to allow Bitcoin to become an asset usable on, for example, Uniswap on Ethereum network. Uh, so they uh, immobilize effectively those Bitcoin on one or multiple addresses on the Bitcoin network. Uh, and then they issue equivalent number on uh, as a wrapped Ethereum uh, Bitcoin token. And then actually somebody goes and goes, oh, yep, those three addresses has one million Bitcoin. And between all of those wrapped Bitcoin ERC20s, there's 1 million represented there. So there's two different proofs of reserves. People need to understand that we talk about pretty different. One is for asset issuers, which are asset backed. And that's proof of reserves and asset backing. And then there's the proof of reserves for uh, deposit takers like brokers and exchanges. Um, so yeah, so welcome step. Uh, but of course, kind of, um, you know, and again, if you look back in history, most people had very insecure hot wallet infrastructure. So once again, if you remember my example, if you've got 6 million uh, customers, sorry, 3 million customers taking Bitcoin and Ethereum, there's 6 million addresses. And most people have never been able to create a secure enough hot wallet infrastructure. So what would usually happen is they would take hot wallet funds that are received and immediately transfer them, or very quickly, to cold storage, which was a lot safer. So again, remember, most of the time, this was not a, a kind of suspicious or various activities, a fully legitimate way to secure assets. Now, this was not done to hoodwink customers. It was, of course, exploited in some cases. But in most cases, there was good reason, security reason, to have easy to create and manage, but less secure hot wallets that you sweep the funds over to cold storage but once the funds are swept, you now need to do all of this proof of reserves. Uh, the alternative with solutions like ours is you can start to take perhaps a different approach. If you feel like that the solution is safe enough in principle, you can actually leave majority of not all funds in the secure hot wallets. Yeah. And therefore you no longer need to move from cold uh, from hot to cold and cold to hot. You can have segregated addresses where the funds remain. Um, and that gives much greater transparency uh, to the customer because they can actually see their deposits. That may may not be always possible because there might be good reasons why for uh, liquidity management, you need to pull some assets to do uh, in kind of hedge trades on exchanges in bulk in order to give the best price if you broker to your customers. But still, a large chunk of your assets could well still reside in a segregated wallet, but that's now much more secure. Not only do you get an advantage of transparency, then actually uh, you can then reduce network fees because every time you receive a deposit and sweep it uh, to cold address and back again, actually what you're doing is you're going to be using up uh, Ether or Bitcoin for fee network fees. Uh, so there's transparency and cost savings to be had if you deem your hot wallet infrastructure, uh, such as you get with Trust Vault, secure enough to store a significant amount of assets 
uh, in those wallets without moving that code. Uh, we offer our customers choice. We, we do have now uh, kind of uh, in beta right now, um, we have an open up to around cold wallets uh, and kind of uh, our original hot wallets. So there are sometimes regulatory requirements. So some jurisdictions actually specify the need for cold storage. Uh, so sometimes uh, folks, whether or not the security is right or not, sometimes you just have to be able to say you got air gap cold storage and therefore uh, we kind of do facilitate that as well. But uh, we're also very, very strong on what I would, in my opinion, have the right balance between security, accessibility, and transparency with hot wallets. Fascinating. And in terms of the institutional adoption curve, um, there's a lot of impressive operators in, in the custody field trying to make this um, achievable. But where where do you think we are in, in crypto in, in terms of institutional adoption? Sort of how it often seems to me it's sort of still slightly Obviously, there's a trillion dollars of crypto, give or take, but we're still pretty early days, right, in terms of institutions storing and custody. Uh, I think it depends on what how we define institutions. So, you know, we see a lot of uh, new crypto hedge funds, you'd call them alternative investment funds, Often kind of folks coming out of traditional finance who fell in love with crypto and start their own stuff. We see a lot of that. You know, if you look at crypto fund research globally, there's over 800 crypto funds out there. Um, they tend to be a lot smaller uh, than traditional funds. You know, <laughs> when I was at UBS, I wouldn't look at anything below 150 mil AUM because the margins were so low. Uh, so you needed that volume. Actually, uh, you know, even using traditional 2 and 20 pricing model um, in DeFi, given the current returns, it's feasible to kind of, uh, and given the low cost of technology and entry, um, 20 mil is not too low to run a successful fund. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing much lower barriers to entry uh, in crypto, and therefore institutional is a lot smaller than traditional institutional. In terms of adoption by traditional institutions, whether it's sell side or buy side, actually kind of the buy side is probably more aggressive than the sell side. Uh, the sell side still, in my opinion, talks a lot, doesn't do much. Hell, I work for uh, kind of in those organizations and one of the reasons I started Trustology initially was because I wanted to do not talk. I think there's still a lot of uh, hedging um, by the sales side. Uh, they talk a lot. They make marketing announcements to make sure that they maintain a kind of mind share. But I do think there's still a lot of vaporware. Um, you know, it's still very much the domain of R&D teams. There are some notable exceptions. Fidelity uh, is kind of one of the few institutions uh, in the mirror who actually kind of um, went along and did something for real in this case, and I applaud them. It's amazing. Uh, but nonetheless, their rate of adoption and the technology sophistication, I think, is far behind what a more agile solution can do. You know, it's uh, kind of, I worked in and ran innovation teams for large banks, and I always saw fintechs and big banks and partnerships 
uh, one is able to move a lot faster because actually they just have a lot of let risk. You know, I would hate it if BNY Mellon took the kind of risk that startups can do because they're responsible for trillions of people's pensions. Um, they simply cannot take the same level of risk as a startup. You can, you, have, you don't have legacy technology. So I think there's always a partnership, but right now, if you look in terms of the rate of actually bringing real products to the market, um, it's all in the startup space. There is uh, very little in the traditional kind of um, sell-side offerings still. Um, I think that will accelerate, but um, but it, it's still very much an asymmetric game right now. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, obviously a very exciting area right like like in terms of the i guess the kind of micro mini institutions that you're describing on the hedge fund side um it's kind of allowing a lot of creativity and finance that perhaps um like you could argue one of the gaps that crypto fills is very much a lot of regulation docked risk taking in in traditional finance to a certain extent and crypto provides just a means for sort of financial, well, fintech style creativity. I mean, look, there's, there's a couple of factors in my personal opinion. Um, you know, one is just crypto has not the cost base of legacy solutions. Um, many people still instruct trades by phone or by fax, I kid you not, or email that requires very large teams of operations performing a bunch of stuff. That's expensive, yeah, really expensive. And that cost uh, has a carry length of at least 30 years. You know, systems don't get replaced. So they're going to have to spread the cost out uh, across all of their offerings to some extent, and therefore every unit cost is going to be much more expensive. A startup like ours is not encumbered with that. Yeah, we have effectively a clean slate, which is uh, pure tech. We don't even have a phone number you can call. Yeah, because nobody bothers with that. We have chat support and so on and Slack. It's extremely, it, you know, we our users are tech savvy. So we're not having to hire people to explain how to press a button. So we can eliminate large, vast amounts of cost simply because we have a very targeted, highly technically educated customer base that accept a fully automated set of solutions. So that infrastructure play is just a lot cheaper. That's something that cannot be met by traditional players because as soon as they take that tech stack on, they'll have to arm it to, uh, uh, kind of spread their costs to that solution. So it will be 10 times more expensive as soon as that solution is uh, taken in-house by a large uh, organization. So there's a cost play. Uh, so it's not just regulatory arbitrage. And then ultimately, the other thing that to me is very exciting is that we have a genuinely new asset class. We should stop thinking about crypto as just a side kind of sideshow. Uh, Bitcoin is an asset class where no government can inflate its money supply. Now, you may not value that. That's okay. But there's actually a lot of people who do because I don't want my Bitcoin to be uh, kind of supply side to be inflated uh, based on political whims through quantitative easing. I want the guarantee that it can't. Yeah. Utility tokens. 
effectively it's an alternative model to co-creating network effect businesses. Uh, that incentivization model simply doesn't exist for shares because with shares, um, any network effect created by users uh, is captured by the shareholders. Whilst with the utility token model, actually the network effect builders are the ones who co-share in the value they create. There are very different incentive models. Furthermore, decentralized platforms become exciting because they simply cannot be uh, kind of hijacked by a central operator. Look at what's happened to Twitter. Uh, new guy comes in, buys it up. All these people who build businesses on Twitter, gone, because he said, I don't want you using my APIs. Uh, you know, why do people care about decentralized metaverse? Because they don't want the same to happen. They don't want Mark Zuckerberg to kick them off uh, the Meta's metaverse uh, whenever he feels like it. They want to have a decentralized platform where no single entity can arbitrarily kick you out because they feel like it or their business model changes. So there are a lot of inherent new value propositions that may not be always obvious because a lot of people simply just speculate but for people who care about this stuff, there is inherent value. Therefore, it's not for me about regulatory arbitrage or anything else. It is about a genuinely new set of asset classes with different properties to traditional securities and fiats that are valuable to me and others who think in the same way. And then we provide radically cheaper infrastructure to manage those compared to traditional space. Um, I think that is a proposition. It's extremely powerful. And people are starting to kind of slowly inch that way and go, yeah, actually, it's pretty good. I think the problem was that uh, the marketing was overly aggressive. You know, everyone will move to Bitcoin. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, uh, there is value in fiat currency. It's just like there's value in Bitcoin. Uh, and different use cases will require different asset classes with different properties. So it's a portfolio approach rather than winner takes all. Um, but yeah, I think short answer, there is a lot of value there beyond just regulatory arbitrage. Yeah, no, 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 100%. And I think it is fascinating, right? Like, like in, in some cases, I think you, you the way I'd see it is, is a lot of these use cases are proving themselves out, right? Like, like I think Bitcoin as a gold alternative, relatively well understood, trades in an uncorrelated manner sometimes to to growth stocks and whatever and and has that that correlation's come off quite a bit recently um so that's pretty interesting and exciting i think and 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 clearly it's very easily articulated right like you know there's only going to be 21 million bitcoin like i think there's a lot of things that are very beautiful and easily understood about how bitcoin works um and then similarly, I think Ethereum clearly has proved itself out a lot, I think, with the merge especially and how it's differentiating itself from, from Bitcoin and and uh, and has, having smart contract functionality. You're getting a very stable asset ecosystem there. It's interesting, like, the, the sort of metaverse use cases and the utility tokens and all these things, I think suddenly come under fire from the skeptics a lot more. Like that, I think the utility tokens and governance tokens and uh, 
NFTs and whatever. These are all very creative areas of crypto, but but it, the the speculative element ends up being sort of ninety nine percent of the market. I think from from people who scratch the surface can be quite appalled by how those markets operate. Right. So where where do you sit in terms of how that experimentation, which is very rapid, is 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 rolling out and sort of, I guess, how fair it is to consumers that those how those markets are operating. No, absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, you're very eloquent about Bitcoin. There's not much more to say. I think what's um, unique about a lot of the DeFi exchanges, for example, on Ethereum is the automated market maker model. Very interesting, genuinely new. Uh, it allows effectively uh, passive market making, which was never an opportunity. Uh, what does it mean? It means that yeah, traditionally market makers guarantee the uh, kind of bids and orders on exchanges, but it's an extremely labor intensive uh, operation by uh, supplying liquidity to uh, smart contracts, essentially the DEX liquidity pool smart contracts. Uh, you can do, you can earn relatively good income uh, in a relatively passive way, which is quite interesting kind of. So you got, um, essentially almost like an evolution of index funds, if you think about it in a very abstract way, you know, passive income on index funds, passive income as a market maker. It allows new revenue models, uh, again, at a much lower pricing point. You'd be paying your wealth manager quite a few basis points uh, for that kind of return that you can now achieve through very relatively low-risk uh, DeFi strategies. So I think that's exciting. Um, similar like lending and borrowing uh, pools again it's the cost of entry and uh, kind of it's a lot lower nowadays and again and provide pretty low risk comparatively I will always be careful with that everything is risky uh, but relatively speaking compared to other opportunities lower risk let's call it uh, yield opportunities so that makes a lot of sense and it provides a platform for both institutional and potentially professional investors uh, to to generate yield at a much lower uh, kind of management fee uh, cost basis. So that's, that's kind of interesting. And then you move to NFTs. I personally think we've just scratched the surface of this. One of the things, you know, we've seen, for example, is a lot of intellectual property being trapped uh, in centralized ecosystems, Kindle books on AW, uh, AW, uh, Amazon's Kindle, uh, Netflix, and all that kind of stuff, which I think a lot of the time gates the opportunity for creators. I absolutely envisage, for example, unbundling of this business model. So the creator creates television show, writes a book, uh, creates music. And instead of having to then uh, effectively manage that through a closed ecosystem where the prices are heavily dictated to them by the ecosystem, we can now have unbundled competition for the provision of that asset uh, versus the creation of that. What does that practically mean? Well, let's say somebody makes a film, they own an NFT right. If I want to stream that film, I might purchase NFT either to always watch it, a permanent license effectively, or an NFT for X number of views. But instead of having to go to a single kind of uh, streaming provider, actually, I might have an open marketplace for streaming providers. 
could be Netflix, it could be Amazon Prime, it could be Disney Plus. I don't care who is going to stream to me the cheapest uh, kind of for the quality of uh, kind of bit rate I want content to me and create a marketplace like that, which actually I think will open up the competition and benefit creators and ultimately the consumers. So I think NFTs allows uh, traveling of IP across the digital landscape. I think that's really untapped yet. People haven't really got their head around it. We haven't got the technology yet to really take advantage of that. But I think it's coming. And we're already starting to see OpenSea as a, you know, um, open marketplace where people can uh, kind of buy, sell NFTs. We haven't got the streaming yet. Uh, or kind of the content delivery behind those NFTs. But I think that will come and it'll be really, really exciting. No, no, beautiful sort of state of the market um, summary in, in this whole conversation, Alex. I think it's been it's been very good. And uh, certainly I agree with you that all the, the DeFi use cases and the creativity in the token market more widely is, is going to throw up more and more opportunities but i think probably makes a um sense to end uh, this podcast here but but I, is there any final thoughts that, that you have uh, after this conversation i guess maybe just one thing for people to think about is i think a lot of people have uh, talked about DeFi as being hard to use i think again this is slight misunderstanding because most of the DeFi protocols are just that, they're protocols. And those protocols ended up providing user interfaces or dApps to interface with them because nobody else was. But we're now starting to see the evolution of this. Meaning, for example, you know, we're seeing Zapper and others already providing different user interfaces, combining and like Lego bricks, multiple DeFi protocols, creating really beautiful user experiences on top of one or multiple interconnected protocols. And I think that's the future, whether there's going to be dApps or potentially even CFI brokers that provide that uh, kind of ease of use, customer support, regulatory assurance, insurance of assets on top of those protocols. I think that's probably, we're going to see more of that hybrid. Another little bit of a prediction I actually do think we will see far enough away that nobody can remember what I promised them. Uh, let's say 10 years time, possibly deeper liquidity on DeFi than potentially CeFi because of trust issues in many cases of CeFi, especially a regional segregation. We see people in Europe trusting European uh, venues much more than, for example, Asian ones. So there's a kind of segregation or fragmentation of capital that is very geographic, whilst uh, kind of as people understand the power of small contracts, we're seeing them to be much more international. You know, people from all over the world are willing to trust smart contracts because they're stateless, as in there is no jurisdiction state rather than stateless from a data perspective. And that's important because then people will start putting more liquidity into those. And as they put more liquidity into them, deep liquidity means far less slippage on bigger trades. Um, plus much lower listing costs. So actually kind of, I see the future where it might well be that the uh, biggest variety and the biggest depth is on the DeFi rails rather than the CeFi rails. Hard to know, I might be wrong, but it's it's an interesting thought experiment to maybe walk away with. 
Yeah, no, wonderful, wonderful. And uh, so given that, Alex, we'll be looking forward to DeFi Summer 2023 and um, <laughs> uh, um, starting the building blocks of this uh, huge market. So fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. Thank you.